It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Ahoy, Parcasters. Welcome back to another episode of Parcast Presents Storytime as we continue Robert Louis Stevenson's classic adventure, Treasure Island. This is the third episode of a six-part series, so if you haven't listened to parts one and two yet, we recommend going back and starting from the beginning. And be sure to check your feed to hear the next part of the story. In our story so far, young Jim Hawkins discovered a treasure map in the sea chest of the old buccaneer. With the help of some friends, he hired a crew to man the Hispaniola and set sail for a journey across the open ocean. But as the comrades neared their destination, Jim discovered that the one-legged sea cook, Long John Silver, was not the upright sailor he believed him to be. With only six members of the 25-man crew still loyal to Captain Smollett, mutiny was looking more and more inevitable. Without further ado, we're excited to present part three of Treasure Island, My Shore Adventure. Chapter 13, How My Shore Adventure Began The appearance of the island when I came on deck next morning was altogether changed. Although the breeze had now utterly ceased, we'd made a great deal of way during the night and were now lying becalmed about half a mile to the southeast of the low eastern coast. Gray-colored woods covered a large part of the surface. This even tint was indeed broken up by streaks of yellow sandbreak in the lower lands and by many tall trees of the pine family outtopping the others, some singly, some in clumps, but the general coloring was uniform and sad. The hills ran up clear above the vegetation in spires of naked rock. All were strangely shaped, and the spyglass, which was by three or four hundred feet the tallest on the island, was likewise the strangest in configuration, running up sheer from almost every side, and then suddenly cut off at the top like a pedestal to put a statue on. The Hispaniola was rolling scuppers under in the ocean swell. The booms were tearing at the blocks. The rudder was banging to and fro, and the whole ship creaking, groaning, and jumping like a manufactory. I had to cling tight to the backstay, and the world turned giddily before my eyes. For though I was a good enough sailor when there was way on, this standing still and being rolled about like a bottle was a thing I never learned to stand without a qualm or so. Above all in the morning, on an empty stomach. Perhaps it was this... Perhaps it was the look of the island, with its gray, melancholy woods and wild stone spires, and the surf that we could both see and hear foaming and thundering on the steep beach. At least, although the sun shone bright and hot, and the shorebirds were fishing and crying all around us, 
and you would have thought anyone would have been glad to get to land after being so long at sea, my heart sank, as the saying is, into my boots, and from the first look onward, I hated the very thought of Treasure Island. We had a dreary morning's work before us, for there was no sign of any wind, and the boats had to be got out and manned, and the ship warped three or four miles round the corner of the island and up the narrow passage to the haven behind Skeleton Island. I volunteered for one of the boats, where I had, of course, no business. The heat was sweltering, and the men grumbled fiercely over their work. Anderson was in command of my boat, and instead of keeping the crew in order, he grumbled as loud as the worst. Well, he said with an oath, it's not forever. I thought this was a very bad sign, for up to that day the men had gone briskly and willingly about their business, but the very sight of the island had relaxed the cords of discipline. All the way in, Long John stood by the steersman and conned the ship. He knew the passage like the palm of his hand, and though the man in the chains got everywhere more water than was down in the chart, John never hesitated once. "'There's a strong scour with the ebb,' he said, "'and this here passage has been dug out, in a manner of speaking, with a spade.' We brought up just where the anchor was in the chart, about a third of a mile from each shore, the mainland on one side and Skeleton Island on the other, the bottom was clean sand. The plunge of our anchor sent up clouds of birds wheeling and crying over the woods, but in less than a minute they were down again, and all was once more silent. The place was entirely landlocked, buried in woods, the trees coming right down to high watermark, the shores mostly flat, and the hilltops standing round at a distance in a sort of amphitheater, one here, one there. Two little rivers, or rather two swamps, emptied out into this pond, as you might call it, and the foliage round that part of the shore had a kind of poisonous brightness. From the ship we could see nothing of the house or stockade, for they were quite buried among trees. And if it had not been for the chart on the companion, we might have been the first that had ever anchored there since the island arose out of the seas. There was not a breath of air moving, nor a sound, but that of the surf booming half a mile away along the beaches and against the rocks outside. A peculiar stagnant smell hung over the anchorage, a smell of sodden leaves and rotting tree trunks. I observed the doctor sniffing and sniffing, like someone tasting a bad egg. I don't know about treasure, he said, but I'll stake my wig there's fever here. If the conduct of the men had been alarming in the boat, it became truly threatening when they had come aboard. They lay about the deck growling together in talk. The slightest order was received with a black look and grudgingly and carelessly obeyed. Even the honest hands must have caught the infection, for there was not one man aboard to mend another. Mutiny, it was plain, hung over us like a thundercloud. And it was not only we of the cabin party who perceived the danger, Long John was hard at work going from group to group, spending himself in good advice, and as for example, no man could have shown a better. 
he fairly outstripped himself in willingness and civility. He was all smiles to everyone. If an order were given, John would be on his crutch in an instant with the cheeriest, aye, aye, sir, in the world. And when there was nothing else to do, he kept up one song after another, as if to conceal the discontent of the rest. Of all the gloomy features of that gloomy afternoon, this obvious anxiety on the part of Long John appeared the worst. We held a council in the cabin. Sir, said the captain, if I risk another order, the whole ship will come about our ears by the run. You see, sir, here it is. I get a rough answer, do I not? Well, if I speak back, pikes will be going in two shakes. If I don't, Silver will see there's something under that and the game's up. Now we've only one man to rely on. And who is that? asked the squire. Silver, sir, returned the captain. He's as anxious as you and I to smother things up. This is a tiff. He'd soon talk him out of it if he had the chance. And what I propose to do is to give him the chance. Let's allow the men an afternoon ashore. If they all go, why, we'll fight the ship. If they none of them go, well then, we hold the cabin, and God defend the right. If some go, you mark my word, sir, Silver'll bring them aboard again as mild as lambs. It was so decided. Loaded pistols were served out to all the sure men. Hunter Joyce and Redruth were taken into our confidence and received the news with less surprise and a better spirit than we had looked for. And then the captain went on deck and addressed the crew. My lads, said he, we've had a hot day and are all tired and out of sorts. A turn ashore will hurt nobody. The boats are still in the water. You can take the gigs and as many as please may go ashore for the afternoon. I'll fire a gun half an hour before sundown. I believe the silly fellows must have thought they would break their shins over treasure as soon as they were landed, for they all came out of their sulks in a moment and gave a cheer that started the echo in a faraway hill and sent the birds once more flying and squalling round the anchorage. The captain was too bright to be in the way. He whipped out of sight in a moment, leaving Silver to arrange the party. And I fancy it was as well he did so. Had he been on deck, he could no longer so much as have pretended not to understand the situation. It was as plain as day. Silver was the captain, and a mighty rebellious crew he had of it. The honest hands, and I was soon to see it proved that there were such on board, must have been very stupid fellows. Or rather, I suppose the truth was this, that all hands were disaffected by the example of the ringleaders. Only some more, some less, and a few, being good fellows in the main, could neither be led nor driven any further. It is one thing to be idle and skulk, and quite another to take a ship and murder a number of innocent men. At last, however, the party was made up. Six fellows were to stay on board, and the remaining thirteen, including Silver, began to embark. Then it was that there came into my head the first of the mad notions that contributed so much to save our lives. 
if six men were left by silver, it was plain our party could not take and fight the ship, and since only six were left, it was equally plain that the cabin party had no present need of my assistance. It occurred to me at once to go ashore. In a jiffy, I had slipped over the side and curled up in the foresheets of the nearest boat, and almost at the same moment, she shoved off. No one took notice of me, only the bow oar saying, Is that you, Jim? Keep your head down. But Silver, from the other boat, looked sharply over and called out to know if that were me. And from that moment, I began to regret what I had done. The crews raced for the beach, but the boat I was in, having some start and being at once the lighter and the better manned, shot far ahead of her consort, and the bow had struck among the shoreside trees, and I had caught a branch and swung myself out and plunged into the nearest thicket, while Silver and the rest were still a hundred yards behind. "'Jim! Jim!' I heard him shouting. But you may suppose I paid no heed. Jumping, ducking, and breaking through, I ran straight before my nose till I could run no longer. Chapter 14 The First Blow I was so pleased at having given the slip to Long John that I began to enjoy myself and look around me with some interest on the strange land that I was in. I had crossed a marshy tract full of willows, bulrushes, and odd outlandish swampy trees, and I had now come out upon the skirts of an open piece of undulating, sandy country about a mile long, dotted with a few pines and a great number of contorted trees not unlike the oak in growth, but pale in the foliage like willows. On the far side of the open stood one of the hills with two quaint, craggy peaks shining vividly in the sun. I now felt for the first time the joy of exploration. The isle was uninhabited, my shipmates I had left behind, and nothing lived in front of me but dumb brutes and fowls. I turned hither and thither among the trees. Here and there were flowering plants unknown to me. Here and there I saw snakes, and one raised his head from a ledge of rock and hissed at me with a noise not unlike the spinning of a top. Little did I suppose that he was a deadly enemy and that the noise was the famous rattle. Then I came to a long thicket of these oak-like trees, Live or evergreen oaks, I heard afterwards they should be called, which grew low along the sand like brambles, the boughs curiously twisted, the foliage compact like thatch. The thicket stretched down from the top of one of the sandy knolls, spreading and growing taller as it went, until it reached the margin of the broad, reedy fen through which the nearest of the little rivers soaked its way into the anchorage. The marsh was steaming in the strong sun, and the outline of the spyglass trembled through the haze. All at once there began to go a sort of bustle among the bulrushes. A wild duck flew up with a quack, another followed, and soon over the whole surface of the marsh a great cloud of birds hung screaming and circling in the air. I judged at once that some of my shipmates must be drawing near along the borders of the fen. Nor was I deceived, 
for soon I heard the very distant and low tones of a human voice, which, as I continued to give ear, grew steadily louder and nearer. This put me in a great fear, and I crawled under cover of the nearest live oak and squatted there, hearkening as silent as a mouse. Another voice answered, and then the first voice, which I now recognized to be Silver's, once more took up the story and ran on for a long while in a stream, only now and again interrupted by the other. By the sound, they must have been talking earnestly and almost fiercely, but no distinct word came to my hearing. At last, the speakers seemed to have paused and perhaps to have sat down. For not only did they cease to draw any nearer, but the birds themselves began to grow more quiet and to settle again to their places in the swamp. And now I began to feel that I was neglecting my business, that since I had been so foolhardy as to come ashore with these desperados, the least I could do was to overhear them at their councils, and that my plain and obvious duty was to draw as close as I could manage under the favorable ambush of the crouching trees. I could tell the direction of the speakers pretty exactly, not only by the sound of their voices, but by the behavior of the few birds that still hung in alarm above the heads of the intruders. Crawling on all fours, I made steadily but slowly towards them, till at last, raising my head to an aperture among the leaves, I could see clear down into a little green dell beside the marsh, and closely set about with trees, where Long John Silver and another of the crew stood face to face in conversation. The sun beat full upon them. Silver had thrown his hat beside him on the ground, and his great, smooth, blonde face, all shining with heat, was lifted to the other man's in a kind of appeal. Mate, he was saying, it's because I thinks gold dust of you, gold dust, and you may lay to that. If I hadn't took to you like pitch, do you think I'd have been here a warning of you? All's up, you can't make nor mend. It's to save your neck that I'm a-speaking. And if one of the wild uns knew it, where'd I be, Tom? Now tell me, where'd I be? Silver, said the other man, and I observed he was not only red in the face, but spoke as hoarse as a crow, and his voice shook, too, like a taut rope. Silver, says he, you're old and you're honest, or has the name for it, and you've money, too, which lots of poor sailors hasn't, and you're brave, or I'm mistook. And will you tell me you'll let yourself be led away with that kind of a mess of swabs? Not you. As sure as God sees me, I'd sooner lose my hand if I turn again my duty. And then, all of a sudden, he was interrupted by a noise. I had found one of the honest hands. Well, here, at that same moment, came news of another. Far away out in the marsh there arose, all of a sudden, a sound like the cry of anger, then another on the back of it, and then one horrid, long-drawn scream. The rocks of the spyglass re-echoed it a score of times. The whole troop of marsh birds rose again, darkening heaven, with a simultaneous whirr. And long after that death yell was still ringing in my brain, silence had re-established its empire, 
And only the rustle of the redescending birds and the boom of the distant surges disturbed the languor of the afternoon. Tom had leaped at the sound like a horse at the spur, but Silver had not winked an eye. He stood where he was, resting lightly on his crutch, watching his companion like a snake about to spring. John, said the sailor, stretching out his hand. Hands off, cried Silver, leaping back a yard, as it seemed to me, with the speed and security of a trained gymnast. Hands off, if you like, John Silver, said the other. It's a black conscience that can make you feared of me. But in heaven's name, tell me, what was that? That, returned Silver, smiling away, but warier than ever, his eye a mere pinpoint in his big face, but gleaming like a crumb of glass. That? Oh, I reckon that'll be Alan. And at this point, Tom flashed out like a hero. Alan, he cried, then rest his soul for a true seaman. And as for you, John Silver, long you've been a mate of mine, but you're mate of mine no more. If I die like a dog, I'll die in my duty. You've killed Alan, have you? Kill me too if you can, but I defies you. And with that, this brave fellow turned his back directly on the cook and set off walking for the beach. But he was not destined to go far. With a cry, John seized the branch of a tree, whipped the crutch out of his armpit, and sent that uncouth missile hurtling through the air. It struck poor Tom, point foremost, and with stunning violence, right between the shoulders in the middle of his back. His hands flew up, he gave a sort of gasp, and fell. Whether he were injured much or little, none could ever tell. Like enough to judge from the sound, his back was broken on the spot, but he had no time given him to recover. Silver, agile as a monkey even without leg or crutch, was on the top of him next moment and had twice buried his knife up to the hilt in that defenseless body. From my place of ambush, I could hear him pant aloud as he struck the blows. I do not know what it rightly is to faint, but I do know that for the next little while, the whole world swam away from before me in a whirling mist, silver and the birds and the tall spyglass hilltop going round and round and topsy-turvy before my eyes, and all manner of bells ringing and distant voices shouting in my ear. When I came again to myself, the monster had pulled himself together, his crutch under his arm, his hat upon his head. Just before him, Tom lay motionless upon the sward. But the murderer minded him not a whit, cleansing his blood-stained knife the while upon a wisp of grass. Everything else was unchanged, the sun still shining mercilessly on the steaming marsh and the tall pinnacle of the mountain, and I could scarce persuade myself that murder had been actually done and a human life cruelly cut short a moment since before my eyes. But now John put his hand into his pocket, brought out a whistle, and blew upon it several modulated blasts that rang far across the heated air. I could not tell, of course, the meaning of the signal, but it instantly awoke my fears. More men would be coming, 
I might be discovered. They had already slain two of the honest people. After Tom and Alan, might not I come next? Instantly, I began to extricate myself and crawl back again, with what speed and silence I could manage, to the more open portion of the wood. As I did so, I could hear hails coming and going between the old buccaneer and his comrades, and this sound of danger lent me wings. As soon as I was clear of the thicket, I ran as I never ran before, scarce minding the direction of my flight, so long as it led me from the murderers. And as I ran, fear grew and grew upon me until it turned into a kind of frenzy. Indeed, could anyone be more entirely lost than I? When the gun fired, how should I dare to go down to the boats among those fiends, still smoking from their crime? Would not the first of them who saw me wring my neck like a snipe's? Would not my absence itself be an evidence to them of my alarm, and therefore of my fatal knowledge? It was all over, I thought. Goodbye to the Hispaniola, goodbye to the squire, the doctor, and the captain. There was nothing left for me but death by starvation, or death by the hands of the mutineers. All this while, as I say, I was still running, and without taking any notice, I had drawn near to the foot of the little hill with the two peaks, and had got into a part of the island where the live oaks grew more widely apart and seemed more like forest trees in their bearing and dimensions. Mingled with these were a few scattered pines, some fifty, some nearer seventy feet high. The air, too, smelt more freshly than down beside the marsh. And here a fresh alarm brought me to a standstill with a thumping heart. Chapter 15 The Man of the Island From the side of the hill, which was here steep and stony, a spout of gravel was dislodged and fell rattling and bounding through the trees. My eyes turned instinctively in that direction, and I saw a figure leap with great rapidity behind the trunk of a pine. What it was, whether bear or man or monkey, I could in no wise tell. It seemed dark and shaggy, more I knew not, but the terror of this new apparition brought me to a stand. I was now, it seemed, cut off upon both sides, behind me the murderers, before me this lurking nondescript, and immediately I began to prefer the dangers that I knew to those I knew not. Silver himself appeared less terrible in contrast with this creature of the woods, and I turned on my heel, and looking sharply behind me over my shoulder, began to retrace my steps in the direction of the boats. Instantly, the figure reappeared, and making a wide circuit, began to head me off. I was tired at any rate, but had I been as fresh as when I rose, I could see it was in vain for me to contend in speed with such an adversary. From trunk to trunk, the creature flitted like a deer, running manlike on two legs, but unlike any man that I had ever seen, stooping almost double as it ran. Yet a man it was. I could no longer be in doubt about that. 
I began to recall what I'd heard of cannibals. I was within an ace of calling for help, but the mere fact that he was a man, however wild, had somewhat reassured me, and my fear of silver began to revive in proportion. I stood still, therefore, and cast about for some method of escape. And as I was so thinking, the recollection of my pistol flashed into my mind. As soon as I remembered I was not defenseless, courage glowed again in my heart, and I set my face resolutely for this man of the island and walked briskly towards him. He was concealed by this time behind another tree trunk, but he must have been watching me closely, for as soon as I began to move in his direction, he reappeared and took a step to meet me. Then he hesitated, drew back, came forward again, and at last, to my wonder and confusion, threw himself on his knees and held out his clasped hands in supplication. At that, I once more stopped. Who are you? I asked. Ben Gunn he answered, and his voice sounded hoarse and awkward like a rusty lock. I'm poor Ben Gunn, I am, and I haven't spoke with a Christian these three years. I could now see that he was a white man like myself and that his features were even pleasing. His skin, wherever it was exposed, was burnt by the sun. Even his lips were black, and his fair eyes looked quite startling in so dark a face. Of all the beggarmen that I had seen or fancied, he was the chief for raggedness. He was clothed with tatters of old ship's canvas and old sea cloth, and this extraordinary patchwork was all held together by a system of the most various and incongruous fastenings, brass buttons, bits of stick, and loops of tarry gaskin. About his waist, he wore an old brass-buckled leather belt, which was the one thing solid in his whole accoutrement. Three years, I cried. Were you shipwrecked? Nay, mate, said he, marooned. I had heard the word, and I knew it stood for a horrible kind of punishment, common enough among the buccaneers, in which the offender is put ashore with a little powder and shot and left behind on some desolate and distant island. Marooned three years agone, he continued, and lived on goats since then, and berries and oysters. Wherever a man is, says I, a man can do for himself. But mate, my heart is sore for Christian diet. You mightn't happen to have a piece of cheese about you now, no? Well, many's the long night I've dreamed of cheese, toasted mostly, and woke up again, and here I were. If ever I can get aboard again, said I, you shall have cheese by the stone. All this time he had been feeling the stuff of my jacket, smoothing my hands, looking at my boots, and generally, in the intervals of his speech, showing a childish pleasure in the presence of a fellow creature. But at my last words he perked up into a kind of startled slyness. "'If ever you can get aboard again,' says you,' he repeated. "'Why now, who's to hinder you?' "'Not you, I know.' was my reply. And right you was, he cried. Now you, what do you call yourself, mate? Jim, I told him. Jim, Jim, says he, quite pleased apparently. Well now, Jim, I've lived that rough as you'd be ashamed to hear of. 
Now, for instance, you wouldn't think I had had a pious mother to look at me, he asked. Why, no, not in particular, I answered. Ah, well, said he, but I had. Remarkable pious, and I was a civil, pious boy, and could rattle off my catechism that fast as you couldn't tell one word from another. And here's what it come to, Jim. And it begun with Chuck Farthen on the blessed gravestones. That's what it begun with. But it went further than that. And so my mother told me, and predict the whole she did, the pious woman. But it were providence that put me here. I've thought it all out in this here lonely island, and I'm back on piety. You don't catch me tasting rum so much, but just a thimbleful for luck, of course, the first chance I have. I'm bound I'll be good, and I see the way to. And Jim, looking all around him and lowering his voice to a whisper, I'm rich. I now felt sure that the poor fellow had gone crazy in his solitude, and I suppose I must have shown the feeling in my face, for he repeated the statement hotly. Rich, rich, I says, and I'll tell you what, I'll make a man of you, Jim. Ah, Jim, you'll bless your stars, you will. You was the first that found me. And at this, there came suddenly a lowering shadow over his face, and he tightened his grasp upon my hand and raised a forefinger threateningly before my eyes. Now, Jim, you tell me true. That ain't Flint's ship? He asked. At this, I had a happy inspiration. I began to believe that I had found an ally, and I answered him at once. It's not Flint's ship, and Flint is dead, but I'll tell you true, as you ask me. There are some of Flint's hands aboard. Worse luck for the rest of us. Not a man, with one leg? He gasped. Silver? I asked. Ah, Silver, says he. That were his name. He's the cook and the ringleader, too. He was still holding me by the wrist, and at that he gave it quite a ring. If you was sent by Long John, he said, I'm as good as pork and I know it, but where was you, do you suppose? I had made my mind up in a moment, and by way of answer told him the whole story of our voyage and the predicament in which we found ourselves. He heard me with the keenest interest, and when I had done, he patted me on the head. You're a good lad, Jim, he said, and you're all in a clove hitch, ain't you? Well, you just put your trust in Ben Gunn. Ben Gunn's the man to do it. Would you think it likely, now, that your squire would prove a liberal-minded one in case of help, him being in a clove hitch, as you remark? I told him the squire was the most liberal of men. Aye, but you see, returned Ben Gunn, I didn't mean giving me a gate to keep and a suit of livery clothes and such. That's not my mark, Jim. What I mean is, would he be likely to come down to the tune of, say, 1,000 pounds out of money that's as good as a man's own already? I'm sure he would, said I. As it was, all hands were to share. And a passage home, he added with a look of great shrewdness. Why, I cried, the squire's a gentleman, and besides, if we got rid of the others, we should want you to help work the vessel home. Ah, said he, so you would. And he seemed very much relieved. Now I'll tell you what, he went on. 
So much I'll tell you, and no more. I were in Flint's ship when he buried the treasure, he and six along, six strong seamen. They was ashore nigh on a week, and us standing off and on in the old walrus. One fine day, up went the signal, and here come Flint by himself in a little boat, and his head done up in a blue scarf. The sun was getting up, and mortal white he looked about the cutwater. But there he was, you mind, and the six all dead, dead and buried. How he done it, not a man aboard us could make out. It was battle, murder, and sudden death leastways, him against six. Billy Bones was the mate. Long John, he was quartermaster, and they asked him where the treasure was. Ah, says he, you can go ashore if you like, and stay, he says, but as for the ship, she'll beat up for more by thunder. That's what he said. Well, I was in another ship three years back, and we sighted this island. Boys, said I, here's Flint's treasure, let's land and find it. The captain was displeased at that, but my messmates were all of a mind and landed. Twelve days they looked for it, and every day they had the worse word for me, until one fine morning all hands went aboard. As for you, Benjamin Gunn, says they, here's a musket, they says, and a spade and pickaxe. You can stay here and find Flint's money for yourself, they says. Well, Jim, three years have I been here and not a bite of Christian diet from that day to this. But now you look here, look at me. Do I look like a man before the mast? No, says you, nor I weren't neither, I says. And with that he winked and pinched me hard. Just you mention them words to your squire, Jim, he went on. Nor he weren't neither, that's the words. Three years he were the man of this island, light and dark, fair and rain. And sometimes he would maybe think upon a prayer, says you, and sometimes he would maybe think of his old mother, so be as she's alive, you'll say. But the most part of Gunn's time, this is what you'll say, the most part of his time was took up with another matter, and then you'll give him a nip, like I do. And he pinched me again in the most confidential manner. Then, he continued, then you'll up and you'll say this, Gunn is a good man, you'll say, and he puts a precious sight more confidence, a precious sight, mind that, in a gentleman born than in these gentlemen of fortune, having been one hisself. Well, I said, I don't understand one word that you've been saying, but that's neither here nor there, for how am I to get on board? Ah, said he, that's the hitch for sure. Well, there's my boat that I made with my two hands. I keep her under the white rock. If the worst come to the worst, we might try that after dark. Hi, he broke out. What's that? For just then, although the sun had still an hour or two to run, all the echoes of the island awoke and bellowed to the thunder of a cannon. They've begun to fight, I cried. Follow me. And I began to run towards the anchorage, my terrors all forgotten, while close at my side the marooned man in his goatskins trotted easily and lightly. 
Left, left, says he. Keep to your left hand, mate Jim. Under the trees with you. There's where I killed my first goat. They don't come down here now. They're all mastheaded on them mountings for the fear of Benjamin Gunn. Ah, and there's the cemetery. Cemetery, he must have meant. You see the mounds? I come here and prayed nows and thens when I thought maybe a Sunday would be about due. It weren't quite a chapel, but it seemed more solemn-like. And then, says you, Ben Gunn was short-handed. No chapling, nor so much as a Bible and a flag, you says. So he kept talking as I ran, neither expecting nor receiving any answer. The cannon shot was followed after a considerable interval by a volley of small arms. Another pause, and then, not a quarter of a mile in front of me, I beheld the Union Jack flutter in the air above a wood. Thank you for listening to Part 3 of Treasure Island. In the next episode, Part 4 of our hero's story, the loyal sailors aboard the Hispaniola clash with the mutineers, while Jim Hawkins hurries to help his friends. As the pirates search for Captain Flint's treasure, it becomes increasingly clear that only one side will make it off the island alive. If you've enjoyed today's story, be sure to check out ParCast Presents Treasure Hunt. It's a series of episodes from the ParCast vault dedicated to real-life pirates and some of the richest treasure troves in history, some of which still have yet to be found. For more Long John Silver, check out our episode on the treacherous sea cook from the ParCast original, Villains. This adaptation of Treasure Island by Robert Louis Stevenson is produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. I'm Vanessa Richardson.